So hello, Dr. Kwan. Thank you so much for joining us today. Um, so I know your background originally was in physical engineering, uh, looking at uh, optical techniques that uh, help us record neural activity, uh, which obviously has contributed to totally revolutionizing the tools that we have available to us in the lab. Um, but uh, you migrated from the more, you know, physics side of things over to the more uh, neurobiology side. Um, and now you're one of the most influential scientists in preclinical psychedelic research. So could you talk about your path, your career path, and give us more insight into how you got where you are now? Uh, yeah, I'm happy to talk about that. I don't know if I'm the influential. I mean, we we also just started. <laughs> we like to think we we're contributing and we're going to do more. Um, but it will be it will be yeah. It can, we can start with how I came to be and how I started in this field. Uh, as you mentioned, I did my PhD in applied physics. So as a graduate student, I was building optical microscopes, uh, and I was I was very keenly aware at that time already that some of these microscopes that I that I built, which are known as Two photon microscopes are quite useful for neuroscience um, applications. So for my postdoc and then ultimately also faculty, I decided to pursue more and more basic neuroscience problem. Uh, but how I came to start studying psychoactive substance and particularly psychedelic has to do with the fact that I then started my own lab at uh, Yale in the Department of Psychiatry. So Yale has a long history of studying ketamine um, in the late 1990s, that's where, where John Crystal discovered ketamine as an antidepressant. Mm -hmm. uh, so there, it was just this powerful combination of clinical work and basic science at Yale. Uh, and you, I can see it firsthand right there, how that combination really pushes the development of ketamine from the initial discovery um, to starting to understand some of the mechanisms of action uh, into further clinical trial, and then eventually led to the approval of the uh, one version of it as ketamine nasal spray three years ago. So that, that was just very motivating seeing that process. I mean, I was also part of it, although towards the tail end of it, we also did some research on ketamine. Uh, so I think that really opens my eye in terms of the power of using basic science to study uh, drugs that could have potential therapeutic effect. And as I mentioned, I, I was involved in that ketamine work, but then towards the end, I also de um, decided that, yeah, maybe you know, ketamine is maturing, so it, we should, I should maybe look at some other um, uh, compound that could also have uh, some of these promises. Mm -hmm. uh, so we started in about 2019 was when we started studying psilocybin. So that was maybe one or two years, maybe just one year before I think everybody kind of started jumping on it. Uh, but it gave us a little bit of a head start, and it was interesting, uh, I think, uh, yeah, I think that's how we got into it. And so far, it's been a very exciting journey. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, as you said, it's, you know, there's so much excitement in ketamine's uh, antidepressant effects, as well as you said, the emerging research all on psychedelic compounds. And as you were talking about kind of the mechanism of action, the basic science that might mediate these therapeutic effects, a prevailing hypothesis in a psychedelic's potential therapeutic mechanism of action is thought to stem from or stem from neuroplasticity or these lasting neural changes in structure and function. So generally, what is neuroplasticity and why do you think it's important to study this in the context of psychedelic compounds? Yeah, so neuroplasticity refers to the fact that uh, a neural circuit 
in the brain. A neural circuit, by that I really mean just how neurons connect with each other, communicate with each other. Uh, that connection is not static, and it can change over time. And that can happen through a number of ways. For example, through development, as our brain develops, as you grow up, you can have new neural connections forming, or some of them get pruned. That can also happen through learning. So when we learn a new skill or when we start to perfect a particular motor skill, you can also see some of these changes. Uh, and it does seem like uh, a number of uh, drugs could also have some similar effect where they could affect the connectivity uh, between neurons in the brain in a lasting manner. Uh, and I think in the context of psychedelics and ketamine, uh, there's always been this mystery for how these drugs work, uh, in my opinion. Uh, one is the, the reason being that these drugs, both ketamine and psychedelics, are known to come out of the body well quickly after consumption. So you would take it, the half-life is about several hours, which means that most of the drug uh, is already out of your body uh, after several hours. Yet many of the benefits that people seem to see for treating mental illnesses, particularly depression, seems to last much longer. In the case of ketamine, there has been research showing that the beneficial effect could last up to one to two weeks. For psychedelics, uh, it could be weeks and some study even suggests maybe even months. So I think there's always this challenge on why is it that a drug that is has a sh such a short acting action could have long lasting benefit. And I, I would think that, yeah, neuroplasticity in terms of how this drug could maybe leave a lasting impact on the connectivity between neurons seems to be at least right now, the prevailing hypothesis for why these drugs could have, um, could leave such a trace and have these long lasting effects. Exactly. And it also seems like within the realm of neuroplasticity, there are potentially three, if not more, different forms, as you were alluding to, you know, dendrogenesis, synaptogenesis, or neurogenesis, perhaps even more. How do you think these different forms come together in the realm of psychedelics action throughout the central nervous system? Exactly. I think there are many kinds of plasticity and, uh, I, I feel like we're also even discovering some new forms of plasticity in the brain sometimes that uh, we don't know about. Um, and uh, the plasticity can come in the form of the neuronal connection, which I mentioned, which you also talked about in terms of the spinal genesis, uh, you know, the spines being the, the genetic spine being the site of the connection between the neurons, the postsynaptic site. That's one possibility. Uh, there could be some possibilities uh, of, yeah, maybe some dendrogenesis, uh, but that would involve a bit, a bit more, right? Like the whole, maybe some actual extension of dendrites. Uh, and neurogenesis would refer to the uh, proliferation of uh, new neurons, uh, which has been shown in the rodent brains, in certain brain areas, particularly places like dentate gyrus or factory bulb. Um, yeah, I think the, the it's interesting to think about how psychedelics could influence uh, these different forms of plasticity. There's no reason why... Uh, these compounds engage only one form of plasticity, given that likely the brain also has multiple form of plasticity. Uh, our own work shows that it definitely involves the synaptic part, where it seems to increase the number of neuronal connection. Uh, I think the evidence for some of the other ones remains to be, I think, established in terms of uh, increasing the number of dendrites. I think that's been shown quite forcibly in uh, cell culture in a dish, but maybe not so much in a living brain. And similarly, I think for neurogenesis, I think there's some questions on uh, whether that actually occurs. Uh, but regardless, I, 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 this is where I think it really fascinates me where um, the plasticity mechanism is quite central to just how the brain operates, how it adapts to stimulus and how it learn and 
modify. And yet these compounds seem to be able to latch on and harness that power of the plasticity to also exact change. And I think that's that's the part that's intrigued me and I think, uh, you know, really drive our research. Exactly. And as you mentioned before, it's so fascinating and intriguing that these uh, long-lasting changes are not just, you know, a day or two after psychedelic administration, but has this long durability. And it's going to be very exciting to also see other forms of plasticity emerge as, you know, neuroscience continues to dig into this prevailing hypothesis. And, you know, considering that several drug classes have been studied in the context of neuroplasticity, including, as you mentioned, psychedelics, SSRIs, as well as compounds that are recognized as drugs of abuse, such as cocaine, what makes certain neuroplastic events behaviorally adaptive versus maladaptive? Um, that, that's a good question. I think that's something that the field also struggle with. I think um, uh, I think one should not take the simple view that all plasticity are good. Um, uh, I also think that in some way, maybe adaptive and maladaptive is also too black and white. I, I think there are different levels of plasticity and uh, you, you, some of the, some plasticity changes it might provide some benefit to the to the brain, but also come at a cost. I, I think maybe some changes could have uh, result in uh, you know both type of uh, action. I guess as an example, what I mean is like let's say uh, I'm doing exercise and I add muscle that gives you strength, but then you at the expense of losing flexibility. So I don't think there's uh, it has to be good or bad, but it could have come in uh, multiple facets and. Um, but particularly, I think for the drugs, I think what, what we lack right now is understanding of some of the details of the plasticity. Uh, so we say that, for example, psychedelic can promote neuroplasticity, and we can find that in certain areas like the medial frontal cortex in my lab, for example. Uh, but we can ask, like, what other brain area does it induce plasticity? Um, what are some of the cell types uh, that are induced? And then when you induce them, uh, what kind of connection are you preferentially uh, strengthening? I think having knowing more of those details about that process of plasticity and maybe like what time scale does it occur will 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 allow to start distinguishing between the effects of different drugs. Um, let's say you know cocaine, it also induces plasticity, but people tend to find that more in the other areas like the nucleus accumbens. Uh, so again, I, I think that detail that level of detail has been lacking, and I think uh, is it, sorely needed uh, uh, for research. For sure. And that's why we so heavily appreciate your work in finding the nuanced mechanisms that really look into, you know, what is driving these different forms of neuroplasticity at, you know, a, a deeper layer. And so, you know, with that said, many of these neuroplasticity findings have been primarily centralized in preclinical models. So in in vitro and in vivo models, what do we know about neuroplasticity in humans? How can we measure this? And how do you think these neuroplasticity-related findings in animals can potentially translate into clinical populations? There, there is a clear missing gap, I think, going from preclinical to uh, human populations in terms of uh, what, uh, what we know in terms of plasticity. Uh, in human, there are a number of ways one can measure it, but also more indirectly. Uh, one one way that many people might know is uh, functional MRI, which allow you to measure covariant activity across brain regions. So that's one measure of connectivity, although uh, that kind of measure usually averages across millions of neurons, so it's a bit less precise than the type of connectivity that we, we talk about and we measure. Uh, another way that I think is quite promising is uh, there's also PET imaging method, 
uh, so positron emission tomography that also you can now start to use to look at um, the density of certain presynaptic protein. This is called SB2A uh, marker. You can you can look at presynaptic protein and then density, which is then become a marker, basically a synaptic density. Uh, so there's some good work done. In fact, that's a lot of work done at uh, Yale Psychiatry, which is my uh, old department, uh, looking at how depression and other th uh, also other diseases like Alzheimer's disease alter the synaptic density. And there they do see with depression, for example, you have a loss of synaptic density, um, consistent with some earlier work. Uh, and then also uh, potentially, I mean, with some treatment like ketamine, uh, at least in some fraction of people, it seems like it could increase it. Um, so again, I think in human, there's some ways to do it, but it's indirect. Uh, I think one of the challenges though is uh, yeah, linking that preclinical to uh, humans. So I think it would be very useful to have uh, human and animal model receiving similar kinds of treatment and then be able to compare and contrast these different methods, which uh, I don't think anybody has done that so far. Absolutely. And what is your thought on measuring serum levels of BDNF, for instance, because that seems like a general area of interest for humans. How much validity do you think that has relative to MRI or PET imaging? So BDNF is the um, uh, brain drive neurotrophic factor. So it's involved, thought to involve in a lot of the um, synaptic growth process in the in the brain. Uh, so definitely, I think seeing an increase of it, uh, a lot of people have seen it uh, after. Uh, processes that involve learning or involve some of these um, these compounds like ketamine particularly and to some extent I think psychedelics as well uh, yeah I I'm not as familiar with this I think one one issue with measuring serum level of BDNF though it is quite removed from the central nervous system it's peripheral it is several steps removed from where you probably want to actually measure it which is in the brain region of interest that is actually implicated in depression um, but nonetheless, I think it has potential because uh, it's something that you could potentially do to a lot of people. Um, I think another thing that I think could have some potential uh, that relate to my current department right now, actually in, in the corner of biomedical engineering, there's a lot of effort also to do sequencing uh, out of serum. So you can also have a look at uh, uh, DNA and also other fragments out there. You can do even broader unbiased screen um, using those methods. So I think yeah, I think there's a lot of opportunity to look for uh, biomarkers using these new technologies. That's like an excellent example of, uh, you know, applications of new technologies to studying um, uh, psychedelic and, and drug action in the brain. Um, more specifically in your wheelhouse, you mentioned that you use two-photon microscopy and help develop uh, two-photon microscopes. Um can you discuss the role of two-photon microscopy in your work? What is the technique and what kinds of questions does it allow you to answer? Of course. So uh, typically the brain itself is a very scattering tissue. So it's a very thick tissue with a lot of things in it, like neurons, as I said, different cell type. You have also blood vessel. So it's a very scattering piece of tissue. When light goes in, it tends to scatter everywhere. Uh, so traditionally, it's been very hard to do optical imaging in it. Uh, so with the two-photon microscopy, uh, through the use of some fairly powerful so-called femtosecond laser sources, uh, you can uh, excite an image deep into the brain, uh, even in the scattering tissue. Uh, so you can get to about, in the mouse, you can get through about most of the cortex. Um, uh, so that's actually quite a lot of the, through quite a lot of the area that one would be interested in. 
obviously, if you bring it to a human, that same depth would not be much. It won't even get through the top layer of the cortex. Uh, but for a mouse, the depth is 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 fairly good. Um, so it, uh, at the end, it allows you to yeah image relatively deep in the mouse brain, and then also importantly at subcellular resolution, so you can see detail of single cell or single neuronal connection. Um, so in my lab, yeah, that's the bread and butter method that we use, the two-photon microscopy. Uh, we're excited because you can use it to image uh, individual neurons and the dendrites and then the dendritic spines, which are the inputs of the, for that neuron. Uh, and that allows us to ask some fairly uh, specific questions about uh, what are some of the effects of these uh, drugs like ketamine and psychedelic on the neuronal morphology, but also some of the signaling mechanism uh, at these uh, synaptic contacts. Yeah. So what in general, then, along with two photon microscopy, along with RNA sequencing, you know, what are some of the coolest contemporary techniques we have in our toolbox in a neuroscience lab that, in your opinion, are just some of the most helpful things we have today for uh, interrogating neural circuits? I think one of the exciting things about psychedelic research is that there has been a gap in research about like 30, 40 years. So now, actually, a lot of these techniques that we take for granted now are quite exciting for psychedelic research because they just True. have not been applied to it. If you look at the studies in the 60s and 70s, they would stick one electrode in there and record from a single unit in a anesthetized rat. And that was the state of art at that time. Uh, but since then, there's just a big gap in terms of the research. Um, so many of these methods, uh, even like optogenetics or uh, some, many of these, uh, even immunostain and things like that, it's just not been really done to the detail that one can do right now uh, to study psychedelic. Mm -hmm. In particular, I can tell you, I mean, one one method that we are investing heavily on is like uh, doing electrophysiology. So we have uh, a couple of uh, rigs to do neuropixels recording. So this is a, a way to... Uh, use a microfabricated silicon probe you can insert it in the brain and then it allows you to record simultaneously uh, up to about a thousand neurons and mm -hmm. look at their firing activity. Uh, so ultimately, I think, you know, what gives rise to behavior is the spiking activity and the action potential firing in the brain. So we're very keen on measuring how some of these compounds would also alter the neurodynamics. And so this neuropixels allow us to measure the firing rate um, broadly across multiple brain areas. So when you have such a massive data set as the kind that NeuroPixels gives you, again, which which this is neural activity from thousands of neurons acting simultaneously, um, what sort of, you know, quantitative measurements can you make that really tell you what the important signal is that you're looking for? Yes, there is a danger, I think, because now the data is getting bigger and bigger. Uh, it's harder and harder to analyze. And um, it also takes longer and longer to analyze, I think, yes. uh, <laughs> uh, versus, when, versus when I was a student, right? You, you, you measure something and then it seems like this is what you get and then that's what you get. But now you can apply all these different statistical analysis to it. Uh, I think sometimes one can get lost into applying different analyses to your data uh, without having an aim. Uh, Particularly, I think for drug research for these compounds of ketamine and psychedelics, I, I, I think it's important to think about more of the fundamentals. I think what can give insight are, are things like one should always do some dose dependence curve. So what I mean is like apply different doses of the drug. 
I, I don't see that apply as often now in the studies nowadays. Um, and I'm guilty as other people because, you know, sometimes it's hard because when you do multiple doses, it adds, it multiplied the number of animals. So in the published work that we recently published, for example, we did some in terms of the behavior, we look at different doses, but in the imaging part, we did not. But we are going back and doing more doses now. I think seeing dose dependence is very important because you see how the effect that you see actually scale the dose, which mm -hmm. I think add a lot of validity and rigor to the work. Mm -hmm. And another thing that I see that's, again, just borrowing another page from, I think, older study is comparing comparison between different drugs. I think that's another thing that we're actively doing. Uh, if you see one drug that does a certain thing, then you should be able to find uh, analogs. So for example, my lab, in addition to studying psilocybin, we have a number of projects now looking at 5-methoxy-DMT, which is another related tryptamine compound, but with a slightly increased affinity for 2A relative to, uh, slightly increased affinity for 1A receptor relative to oh. serotonin 2A receptor. So there's slight differences that, uh, again, if, if if the finding, whatever we find is correct, then it should lead to certain prediction and we can then test it with these head-to-head -head comparison with other compounds. So I, I, I yeah, I, I think this uh, this question, on, I think how to do uh, the science better kind of go back to what people used to do, you know, like those dependence, comparison between different compounds. So I think those things are important and we should keep them in mind. No, you're right. I, I think there absolutely is this jump to use all the flashy techniques at our disposal before getting, you know, the real fundamentals down. Um, so, yeah, I, I think that's absolutely right. You said that your lab is studying uh, now multiple psychedelic drugs. Um, I know in terms of your published work, there's this parallel track that you sort of alluded to earlier between studying psilocybin and ketamine. Um, so, Obviously, these two drugs are super different pharmacologically, but they bizarrely seem to have convergent behavioral effects, um, which perhaps might mean they have convergent effects on neural circuits. Um, could you discuss a bit about um, what key similarities and differences your work uh, uh, has found between psilocybin and ketamine? So psilocybin and ketamine are clearly, yes, different compounds uh, in a sense that we know quite confidently they act on different receptors in the brain. So in this case, ketamine is known primarily as a NMDA receptor antagonist, although it's a weak one at that, and then it, it does bind to other uh, receptors, including the opioid receptor. Uh, and then psilocybin is quite different because it doesn't, it's, I don't think there's any known interaction with the NMDA receptor directly, but it acts primarily on serotonin receptors. And there are many subtypes of it. So it basically, for psilocybin, well, first of all, psilocybin receptors, no, psilocybin is a pro-drug, so it converts to psilocin in the body. Psilocin is the thing that binds to serotonin receptors in the brain, uh, but it acts on a range of serotonin receptors. Um, so at the receptor level, which is, again, the first part where the drug acts on the neuron is quite different clearly this thing. Uh, but as you alluded to, there are some similarity in terms of, again, just how short-acting these drugs are, relatively speaking, and then also how they have seem to have these dissociative uh, hallucinogenic effects that alter perception, uh, visual perception, auditory perception, um, and then also then seem to have some longer-lasting changes in, um, in uh, uh, benefits for treating depression. Um, yeah, I, and I, I think a mystery is, again, how these things converge. I mean, my lab has some ideas. I think they're very speculative in terms of uh, where the convergence are, but we have some ideas on how they might converge by 
uh, acting to raise excitability in the dense rights. Um, that's something that, yeah, my lab is very keen to test in the next several years. Awesome. That's really exciting. I'm excited to see what comes out of that. You mentioned how uh, psilocin is a super polypharmacological drug. Not only does it bind to a bunch of serotonin receptor subtypes, but others as well. Um, going back again to these like simple techniques that we have available to us from the 60s and 70s that we didn't get to do back then, really, or we did a little bit. Um, one of these techniques is the receptor blockade, where you take a molecule that you know uh, is highly selective for a particular receptor, block that receptor, and then give the animal or or wash your tissue with the drug of interest. And that way you can decide or rather observe whether um, uh, this receptor is necessary or not for certain effects of the drug. Historically, as you know, uh, catanserin is the most popular uh, serotonin receptor antagonist used uh, to understand the effects of psychedelics. And there was some, I guess, miscommunication in the fields a while ago that catanserin was very selective for the serotonin 2A uh, receptor subtype. But as we know, uh, in recent years, uh, people have been a little more cautious in how they describe it because it also has high affinity for the serotonin 2C receptor subtype. And catanserin seems generally like a sort of complex drug to administer to animals. Um, can you talk about some experiments you you and your lab have done uh, with catanserin and your interpretations of those results? We have used catanserin, yeah, in the context of our recent study, right, where we administer uh, psilocybin to mice, and then we found that uh, psilocybin increases the number of dendritic spines, which is indicative of neuronal connection in the mouse's uh, frontal cortex. Uh, and uh, one of the effects that was a bit unexpected was how long some of those increases of the neuronal connections were due to that single dose of psilocybin. One question that uh, we were wondering at that time was whether the serotonin 2A receptor were responsible because that's the primary target uh, that people think are involved in the hallucinogenic effects uh, or the trip in humans. So what we did was uh, use catanserin as you described as a antagonist. So we would pre-treat the animal with catanserin first and then give them psilocybin. Uh, and then with the idea that uh, you would block the receptor before you administer the psilocybin and then you see whether the same structural remodeling would occur in the mice. And our results show that if you do this catanserin pretreatment, it largely unchanged the structural remodeling. Uh, it seems like the, the new dendritic spines still form after that administration of psilocybin. Uh, I can say that, I mean, we also say that in the paper, I think the, the result itself is still not quite conclusive. I think it's, it's, a, it's an interesting data point, but I don't think it's a conclusive, con con conclusive evidence to say whether the serotonin 2A receptor must be or must not be involved. I, I think there's still some caveat. One is exactly like what you mentioned, catanserin. And in fact, most of drugs itself, right, just like psilocybin itself is not selective, catanserin is also not. Uh, and many of them have different varying degrees of affinity to different receptors. And catanserin, uh, yes, it blocks both kind of 2A and also 2C to also a great effect. Uh, another uh, aspect that we kind of discover after we uh, did the experiment, we would have probably not used catanserin. We did the experiment first, but we, uh, but we, we, uh, but we, we didn't know that before we used the catanserin. Was that catanserin also doesn't go into the mouse brain very well? So I think by using catanserin as a pretreatment, we probably only block a fraction of the receptors in the mouse brain. But nonetheless, I think it's interesting to still see that 
uh, even by blocking a subset of receptor, which seems to affect the mouse's behavior, doesn't uh, lead to a blockade of that uh, drug evoked plasticity. Right. Yeah. So, so diving into that paper, actually, a little more deeply, this is a paper that you published in Neuron in 2021. Um, and uh, in in that paper, you had one behavioral experiment in which uh, uh, mice underwent a learned helplessness paradigm, which is when um, mice get shocked in a box and they're taught that they can't escape. Then the next day, they're given the opportunity to escape, but they don't even bother trying sometimes because they think, what's the point? I'm just going to get shocked anyway here. Um, and the result that you found was that psilocybin was able to alleviate that learned helplessness and mice could actually attempt to escape more. Um, and then you had also the imaging section of the paper where in a different cohort of mice, um, you administered the drug and then um, imaged their neurons over time. So yeah, with that said, as you know, someone who actually worked previously in a stress lab, why did your lab decide to use learned helplessness as the stress assay, as opposed to other stress-related assays such as social defeat stress, chronic unpredictable stress, or perhaps restraint stress? I believe a different stress model review different aspect of the um, stress biology for the for animals, uh, and I don't think any stress paradigm is perfect, and they each have their limitations and caveats. Uh, in for this uh, particular paper, we chose learned helplessness uh, mostly because of the fact that it's relatively quick to implement. Uh, it's also arguably a, a little bit less um, manual in the sense that you shock the mice there. Everything is controlled and automated. We also like that aspect. Um, but learned helplessness has, it has a limitation. One big limitation is that the stress itself is not chronically administered. Uh, the animal only had two exposure, um, which is very different from uh, a, nor a norm uh, scenario with, which are thought to associate with depression, where it's thought that the stress accumulate and you need that chronic exposure of stress. Um, so it, it does not have some of the benefit that other stress uh, paradigm like chronic unpredictable stress or chronic social defeat might have in that regard. Uh, so there, yeah, there's some positive and negative. Um, and I think it remains to be seen which of these stress paradigms might be useful for studying uh, psychedelics. Uh, that's something we're also very keen on think, trying and, and thinking about. Um, uh, because, uh, yeah, again, I think ultimately these stress paradigms reflect different aspects of the um, pathophysiology. Uh, and a lot of them also developed uh, in the era when SSRIs were tested and SSRI and things have shown to act on some of these stress paradigms where psilocybin and psychedelic act on a different mechanism of action. So it's not really clear also how they would interact and whether they're even predictive for testing some of these compounds. Yeah, no, I, I do see the appeal, though, in using the learned helplessness paradigm in terms of like a, such a controlled environment. So for those who don't know, chronic social defeat stress involves putting um, a mouse into uh, your experimental mouse into the cage of a, an older male of a much more aggressive strain generally. Um, and you do that for five minutes a day. And so you're counting on your aggressive male to be a bully, uh, which frequently works as someone who has once run the experiment, but sometimes they're just not that aggressive. Sometimes they're too aggressive and you need to pull um, your experimental mouse out early. 
Um, so there's a lot of variability and mice are intrinsically subjected to different levels of stress depending on. Absolutely. And as an extension of that, it also seems like running social defeat stress in females is very difficult since, you know, older male CD1 rats, or you could also run this in mice, of course, will not socially defeat females. So yeah, I mean, of course, as you mentioned, there are pros and cons to every model, but as Sophie said, we see incredible utility and in learned helplessness. Um, yeah, so actually, uh, going into the sex differences uh, uh, topic, in that paper, there was a, a result that wasn't discussed as much uh, because it wasn't, you know, the the m most important narrative of that paper. But it's actually something I've wanted to ask you about for a while. So um, I, you, your lab found that there was a sex specific effect of psilocybin on um, the spinogenesis. Uh, so uh, it seemed that there was a much stronger effect in females uh, than males. However, there was not a sex-specific effect in psilocybin's effects on behavior. And I was really mm -hmm. curious about your speculations as to what how you interpret the sex specificity of your spinogenesis results, as well as the discrepancy between that and the behavioral results. It's important to study both sexes, uh, I think, in all studies, uh, because... Uh, uh, sex could play a role in many of these um, biological effects. And so that's what we set out to do. And when we do them, we always do them with equal number of both sexes. Uh, so it, it was also unexpected to us to see uh, an effect that's, uh, on the spinogenesis that seems more prominent in the female. That's not something that we would have predicted, I think. And, um, and then you're right, when we do the behavior, we don't seem to see the same sex difference. Although I, I would caution, again, those are just some, it's one set of behavior that we have ran. For example, I know there's a recent paper from another lab that showed that maybe there is some sex difference, at least in one of the behavior in the head twitch response. Yes. Um, so I think the jury is still out. I think uh, these things you need to, I think, repeat a couple of times to see, um, to see what's right. Uh, one thing I could say is that a uh, couple of things we could say is that one is um, I don't think there's very well established sex difference in terms of the um, psychedelic effects of some of these compounds in humans. Like I, I'm not aware of any um, published studies or even a lot of anecdotes that suggest that if human consumes psychedelic, they would feel differently depending on the gender. And then the other thing uh, I would like to say is that being said, in rodent, there does there are uh, some literature suggesting that there might be some differences in BDNF signaling for sex differences. Uh, actually, there were a couple of studies published by my mentor at Yale, Ron Duman, along those lines, where he's a he, he's a pioneer in studying BDNF signaling, and so that could be one reason why some of these uh, plasticity effect could differ. Um, but that's something that yeah, I think I think I think we need more work in the future to to dig deeper into it, the mechanisms. Definitely. And that's actually a perfect segue into our next curiosity of your research, which is what future directions do you see as being most exciting or urgent in the field? And what doors do you think your research opened up that you hope to see further explored within the psychedelic research ecosystem? Right now, the lab is focused on, I would say, a couple of central questions. One is a direct follow-up on the spinogenesis question. Uh, we see that these drugs have a fairly notable effect on the number of synaptic connections. So we really want to know what, where do these connections go to? Like, what are some of the inputs that are being strengthened? 
And also, yeah, what are some of the molecular and cellular factors that allow this to happen? Uh, are there certain genes that turn on that allows this plasticity process to happen? Uh, yeah, what are the receptors involved? Is it the serotonin 2A receptors or could it be 2C or maybe 1A or some other receptor or interaction of these receptors? So that those goes towards the process of how that smilogenesis occurs. Uh, the other side of the lab, I think we're also very, quite interested in the neurodynamics, the neuroactivity dynamics that I referred to earlier. Uh, I mean, that goes back a little bit more to my to the what I've been studying uh, early in my lab, uh, where we're also very interested in uh, how activity dynamics give rise to behavior. Um, so for me, yeah, we're also very interested in how psilocybin could influence sort of the brain-wide dynamics, um, both in terms of the acute phase, but also a little bit into the long-term time period uh, where it is exerting all of these interesting um, behavioral consequences. Uh, so we're also uh, interested to know what are the neuroactivity dynamics that's driving this? What are some of the key brain areas that seems to be really influenced by these uh, these compounds? Absolutely. And, you know, that's right into the point of this uh, urgent kind of increased momentum in psychedelics in general, whether it's coming from the academic standpoint, general biotech standpoint, regulatory, et cetera. And many are excited about the potential of MDMA and psilocybin being potentially FDA approved by 23 and 24, respectively. And so with that said, what do you perceive as the biggest potential risk of these psychedelic and pathogenic, et cetera, compounds in this potential FDA approval process? Uh, in terms of the approval process, I mean, that's, that's, I can, I can, I can speak as an outsider. That's definitely not something that I'm you know, directly involved in. Uh, I mean, for the MDMA trial, half of the phase three trial has been completed and published, and then the other half is ongoing. So that's quite close with the first half seemingly showing some fairly positive outcome. Uh, uh, and then also for psilocybin, where the state is right now, is there are a number of phase two clinical trial completed. Uh, I think Compass Pathway, the company is ahead and they're uh, applying to to start hopefully soon the phase three trial, which will be, again, the, the, the standard that the FDA will look um, to see how the results will be uh, for to determining whether um, to have it approved as a potential treatment. Uh, I think one thing to keep in mind for these compounds is that they're always administered in the context of assisted psychotherapy. So they're not, unlike things like ketamine, which is the infusion, it's done more in an environment that's it's clinical environment, but it's not um, uh, fully supervised. For MDMA and psilocybin, there's typically um, you have a you have a uh, you have a phase that's before you go into it, you talk with the mental health professional to discuss what's going to happen. Um, and then also, uh, uh, then during the dosing session, you're also accompanied by one to two medical professional, and then there's also a follow-up integration session. So the whole process, I think, is quite different from the existing, um, any kind of existing drug treatment, really, that combination type of uh, therapy. So I think that itself have its own, uh, lead to its own just differences in terms of uh, uh, that one has to consider yeah, in terms of the how 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 would you be able to train all of these therapists that could do these? Um, how do you ensure the safety of that interaction? And and then how do you um, 
yeah, how just how do you provide that environment that you know in a clinical trial is easier, right? Because right now in phase two trial, you're only talking about uh, tens of people or maybe hundred people. Uh, but if if this eventually get approved, and I'm sure the FDA will want to look into this, how do you uh, scale this, uh, but still maintain uh, the same level of uh, training that is needed for this? So I think those are some concerns of the field, and I'm just sort of um, yeah reflecting it to you. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's going to be really interesting to see how it's how creative solutions that people can come up with to have some sort of accessibility around psychedelic healthcare, especially considering, you know, the increased cost at the front, you know, because of course, antidepressant treatment over the course of one's entire life may end up costing the same amount as a couple psychedelic assisted therapy sessions. So, you know, it's, I think it's that increased upfront cost that's going to be interesting for um, our healthcare system to figure out. Um, yeah. It- yeah, you're right. So yeah, I didn't even mention that. Like basically, yeah, insurance. Yeah, how would insurance yeah. cover this? And that, which is a big part of, uh, for example, for ketamine, you know, that has been impediment. Uh, yeah. Like there are some some that is covered, but for example, I think the VA has been has been slow in terms of incorporating it. So I I think it's that's that's also a, a big challenge in terms of how to get, at least in the United States, how to get the medical system to uh, to incorporate it into the insurance system. Yeah, a hundred percent. Um, so I'm going to ask you another question at, uh, for, for in your perspective as an outsider. Um, but uh, I'm really intrigued personally because uh, Adrian here is uh, much more involved in the sort of biotechnology side of the psychedelic space. And I am much more on the pure, basic academic research side. Um, so as another academic researcher, um what are some of the things that you're most excited about in the emerging psychedelic industry and maybe some trends that you think warrant caution? The trend that I'm most excited about is there are a number of companies, I think, that are really exploring and developing uh, the chemical space, the new new compounds. Uh, so there's a company, a couple, several companies. I mean, there's a number of them. But for example, David Olson has a company, Delex. Uh, there's also another company, Chemtech. They've been doing a lot of research, really, on the chemistry of these compounds and uh, extending what has previously been known, um, which I think is quite going to be quite useful, even for academics, uh, to have this array of compounds that one can test with varying degrees of properties. Which again, it's also another thing that's really just fascinating about psychedelic research, which is the availability of these type of compound that has slight differences uh, that one can use as a way to tweak the experiments to test hypotheses. Mm-hmm. Uh, in terms of uh, caution and risk, I mean, I can think of yeah. I mean, in terms of uh, my own research, I, I think there yeah there will be some conflict of interest down the road in the sense that yeah there are more and more companies and then they also have a lot of uh, funding and uh, they will want to uh, also interact with academia to fund and sponsor certain research that might advance their goals and then um, on the other hand one could uh, and there's now more and more uh, also federal funding that's not commercial uh, that could support these research for example recently the NIDA which is the National Institute of Drug of Abuse has a call for funding uh, specifically on psychedelics. But I, I, I do see down the road that, uh, yeah, there, there's going to be uh, some, 
I think, conflict between federal funding and commercial funding and their respective interests. Um, and I hope that, you know, the field in general will, you know, still be, uh, you know, more scientific and dive in, continue to dive into some of these basic mechanisms um, as opposed to just solely focus on uh, developing uh, uh, drugs uh, for therapeutic sex. But um, so, but we'll see. I think, I think a, a healthy dose of both is, is a good thing. So I have both, uh, you know, the basic side of things like with federal grants and also with commercial interests. I think we really ultimately the both of them will help the field grow. Absolutely. And I'm so happy to hear you say that because, you know, as we've seen this increased capital infusion and of course, increased social acceptance in terms of psychedelic biotech, um, of course, their psychedelic revival in general, I would really hope that the level of scientific rigor is maintained at these biotech companies. As you mentioned, for instance, like Delix with, uh, you know, Professor David Olson as the founder. But in addition to that, um, that it's not a hype driven sort of pathway. But as you mentioned, it maintains its scientific rigor as these CNS altering compounds must warrant. And so, you know, with that said, as a leading neuroscientist who has profoundly struck a chord in the psychedelic space, do you have any advice for scientifically trained individuals such as Sophie and I who truly aspire to make an impact in this sector? I would think a solid uh, training in uh, any field, actually, or any related field is still a very good prerequisite for working in this area. So what I mean is uh, a, a rigorous academic training in uh, basic systems neuroscience or maybe in chemistry uh, is still foundational if one wants to advance. Because I, I think um, uh, if you look at the uh, look at the companies I'm most excited about, again, the, the one we talk about uh, developing the new chemicals and new compounds, I mean, they can only do that because they have uh, you know amazing talent in uh, chemistry, right? I mean, that's how they do it. So I think um, and also, I think that we hope to make some contribution to this field, too, because we have uh, come from the side of basic neuroscience, and that's what we've been doing for a long time. Um, so I think it's, it's for people who are interested in this field, I would still urge them to to be trained in some of these um, fundamentals and sort of basic disciplines, which I think then can ultimately be applied to uh, to psychedelic research. Another area I think that is uh, really uh, quite amazing and impressive is structural biology. Uh, I think over there, there's also been huge development in terms of um, uh, determining the crystal structure of the various serotonin receptors, and particularly how when they're bound to serotonin, but also some of the psychedelic compound that's been really shedding light um, into how the compounds work and also just facilitate drug discovery. Absolutely. Yeah, wonderful, Dr. Kwan. Thank you so much. So is there anything else that you would like to touch on that we haven't yet discussed? I would just say, yeah, for people who want to work in this field, I think it's a very excited time, exciting time. Uh, as I mentioned, I think there's a long gap of just a stoppage of research activity. So yet there's much remains to be known for these compounds. And now, but now we have all these tools in our arsenal to start to study these things uh, in great detail. So um, it's it's been really uh, exciting to work in this area. Really encourage more people to to start working on it. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Kwan. Yes, thank you, Dr. Kwan.